The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up, with host Carol Oglesby. This program explores the historical roots that women's sport has taken in the past half century, from light competition to collegiate, professional, and Olympic sports today. Now, here is your host, Carol Oglesby. Welcome, welcome, everyone, to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. Our guest today is a woman of such a multitude of talents, it's really difficult to know how to begin an introduction. Uh, She's a successful author, a highly sought motivational speaker, a savvy business entrepreneur, an effective advocate and philanthropist. Oh, and yes, and I should also mention she has raced seven times at the Indy 500. Um, I met her as she became the president of the Women's Sports Foundation. Our guest today, Lynn St. James. Um, Lynn, I've read your wonderful autobiography, Lynn St. James, An Incredible Journey. So I have a little bit of a head start on your background, but I'd like to catch our audience up a bit. So um, tell us about yourself as a young girl. It sounded like you got some good support from your parents on your very active ways, but your mother maybe had some rather conventional views about what women did in adult life. Um, Did you ever feel the messages you got were mixed, or was everything very clear about girlhood? Well, Carol, first of all, it is so cool to be with you again, even if it is electronically. Um, And, you know, to answer that, uh, you know, it's funny because I I mean, I grew up, I was born in 1947. Obviously, this was all pre-Title IX, and um, as an only child, and my mom had polio uh, as a young, very as a young infant, and so, um, and I was, I don't know, she was an independent um, and very savvy gal, woman, um, but it didn't really impact me as far as being a woman, I think, uh, and what we could or couldn't do, because my mom had trouble walking, obviously, and she was challenged in a lot of sort of ways that we considered normal day to day. I think two things were very critical in my youth. One was my aunt, her sister, who was a lieutenant commander of the Navy and a Navy nurse, and we would get, you know, sort of um, letters and pictures from her from time to time as she traveled around the world, and so she was just a woman doing some amazing things. So that probably left a bigger impact on me than I realized. Um, the other was the fact that I went to a girls' school from 7th to 12th grade, and because of that, I was around all different kinds of girls. It was a small school. Um, I mean, our class was, I think, about 80 people, 80 girls. And But because I went to a girls' school, I got sports. And so I was able to play. And I, prior to that, I lived in a, across the street from a factory, did not have the ability. I didn't know how to play. Um, I didn't have any sisters and brothers, and there were no neighbors. And, and so I lived a pretty docile life until seventh grade. And then... I show up in, you know, in September of uh, that year in my seventh grade, and the first sport that they throw at us is field hockey, and I'd never heard or seen such a thing. And, and so I can remember um, the petr- I was petrified, literally, being on a field hockey field holding a stick and not knowing what the heck to do. So 
but because of that, I got sports all the way through 7th to 12th grade, and um, and I'm just blessed that I had that. I was never a great athlete, but I uh, took piano lessons for 13 years, so again, lived a pretty quiet, shy childhood and, and early development, um, but had some influences that probably were subliminally making a bigger impact on me than I realized. And I just had a conversation this morning, actually, with a friend, and, and she we were talking about our youth. She was born in 1971, so a completely different experience than me, but we were talking also about the impact of 1973 when Billie Jean King beat Bobby Riggs, and it had an impact on her, even though she was only two years old, but just that going forward, people talking about it in her very early years. And for me, I, I just vividly remember watching that. And, and I mean, Billie Jean showed that women had the ability to beat men um, that had a lot more to do with it with just with tennis. It was, it was a very powerful um, social statement that uh, I think made a, a huge impact on both men and women, young and old, um, across, the, across the nation. For sure, probably uh, around the world, uh, for that matter. Um, yeah, for sure. I know you you talked about having a kind of a quiet, not so much uh, real active playtime uh, in as a youngster. Um, when did you get any sense that you had a fascination with cars? When, when did that come up in your life? Well, I mean, my mom, again, had this amazing connection to an automobile because for her, it was critical. I mean, for you and I, you know, if our car breaks down and we don't have a car today, we can ride a bike or walk to a corner. My mom didn't have the ability to do that. So for her, a car was everything. And I mean, God, she used to talk about the car all the time. And she was just, you know, hugely impacted and, um, about this automobile and, and knew a lot about cars, to be honest with you, and taught me how to drive. So I, I have to credit her for this sort of, awareness would be the best thing for automobiles. And then I grew up in the 60s when muscle cars were big, de- you know, it was a big deal. And think about going to a girl's school, most of my friends outside of school were guys, and all the guys were into cars. And so I, they, the whole automotive influence hit me in the 60s, um, getting my driver's license, being around hot rods and fast cars and going to the drags with my buddies, um, going to the Indy 500 for the first time um, in, in 1966. So the whole automobile culture was, we were much more immersed in that in the 60s than in today's world. So, but I never knew that I would actually pursue this. I mean, there was no way that that made any sense. I mean, I go to a girl's school, I take piano lessons, I, I did everything that society expected me to do, got married, helped my husband build a business. But there was a huge void in my world and I didn't, couldn't figure out what it was. And I found out real people drove race cars. And this this was later now in 1974, and um, and that this was a hobby. You know, this is something that people could do just for fun. And because I did like to drive and had a lot of tickets to show that I liked to drive. <laughs> uh, oh, that's one thing I, we have in common. Yeah, so you know, not proud of that necessarily, but obviously it sent a signal that I because I'm not a daredevil kind of person. But when I get behind the wheel, and obviously when I pursued this as a hobby. Um, I became a member of the Sports Car Club of America, the Florida region. I found out people needed to go to driver school to get a competition license. And, you know, once the doors open to something new in your life, then you immerse yourself to learn everything you can about it. And, and so I just kept following whatever knowledge I could pursue to find out that I could do. And I went out and bought a Ford Pinto and put a roll bar in it, a five-point seat belt, and a five-pound fire extinguisher had all that installed, which you needed to do for safety, and enrolled in driver school and, and got my competition license. And so 
And to be honest, when I got behind the wheel of that car, which was my street car during the week and race car on the weekends that I got to race, it was like a new sense of power, a new sense of confidence, a new sense of me. I felt it. I just felt this was really me. And, and that void got filled. And, and I truly have been doing it ever since. Well, can you remember a moment or a period in time where you actually started thinking to yourself, uh, I I made this. I'm a driver. How how was that happening? No, it was really more of a. It was a constant evolution and a constant pursuit of aspirational improvement. <laughs> I mean, you know, when I won my first race, I can't even remember to be honest when I won my first race. So, um, but I won a lot of races, um, and I, but it took me a while. I, I didn't start out very well. Actually, I wasn't very good at it in the beginning, but. I wanted it so badly and I enjoyed it so much and I worked so hard that when I started to get successful, then what happens is you then want to be in a faster car. For me, it was just moving up the ladder of the sport. Um, and I've actually continued to do that for 30 years. I mean, essentially from the seventies until well, 20 years until I got to Indy in the nineties. And so in 1992 at the Indy 500 rookie of the year, I mean, that was basically a 22 year mission of continuous improvement, continuous better results, faster car, better car, uh, you know, better team, whatever. I mean, it was continuous, um, but I never, ever, ever felt, oh, I made it. You know, this is, I'm good at this. I'm, I'm, I just never felt that way. I've always, because there's, there's always that next race, you know, where there's always Quite frankly, racing has a way, and I think as a lot of sports do, and I talk about this a lot in my speaking engagements and motivational speaking, is that we really experience failure a lot in life, and we tend to not want to talk about it. We spend a lot of time talking about success, and I think we learn more from failure than we do success, and racing gave me a lot of failures to learn from, <laughs> so... <laughs> I mean, it was just very humbling, you know. The minute you think you're the best, you run a race. The next race, the car breaks, and you don't even make the field or whatever. You know, you it's a very humbling, quickly humbling experience. And so, I uh, it's um, it's to me, it's just it's the pursuit of success, or not even success. It's the pursuit of perfection or of being the absolute best at any given moment. That's hitting every apex, getting everything perfect out of the car. And, and seeing the checkered flag first, it's kind of the, the deal. Well, maybe we should um, s- s- slow down rather than go faster for a second here. <laughs> I know a lot of us maybe are, are sports fans, and we think about progression from high school sport to college sport to professional sport or whatever. But maybe um, I know that I'm, I fit this uh, description. I don't know exactly what the progression would be with a race car driver. You, you say... You started out and you were, and then you went to a faster car. But what I guess you were in Florida at this time, right? But yeah, do, I, you, do I, you start out with shorter distances or what's what's the progression yeah. in difficulty? I guess. Well, and, and, and you, you make a good point because in most sports, there is, a, there is a progression and it's structure and it's pretty consistent no matter where you are in the world. Um, and in racing, it's incredibly complex. Um, and, and very unstructured in that sense, and, and also changes. Um, it, it changes rapidly 
because technology, it's really defined a lot by technology. And look at what happened to our streetcars. I mean, we're soon going to probably have autonomous cars, you know, where you don't even need to be a human to drive it. So technology changes dramatically, and that affects our sport immensely. Politics, politics affect everything, so I won't even go there. So it's really a case of um, figuring out where you live, what's your financial capabilities, and what's available to you to race in, within that region or within that part of the world or within that part of the country, and whether there's open wheel or closed wheel. And I mean, it, it, there's all kinds of different classes. It's all over the map, Carol. It's very hard. That's one of the hardest things to do is to figure out how to have a career. And, and I really went from not having it as a career, having it as an avocation, as a hobby. For seven years, I paid for it out of my own pocket, my husband and I. I mean, we just did this as a hobby, but we did it in the Southeast, which the climate enables you to race year-round. And there's a couple of big races like Daytona and Sebring. Um, and so I was able to get some endurance racing where you, they're long distance, but you co-drive with somebody else. So what I tried to do is do the best I could and move up the so-called ladder within the region and within my financial scope of the world or my capabilities. Um, and I did that for about 10 years or a little bit less than 10 years. And then I got Ford Motor Company as a sponsor in 1981, which was huge. And I chased them for three years and meeting chase them. I kept writing them letters and telling anybody that would, at Ford Motor Company that would listen to me about me and about what I could do and what I had been doing and what I could do for them. And so I signed them as a sponsor in 1981. That changed my ability to race now all over the country and to race better equipment and to race for better teams because I had factory backing. And that's, that's credibility as well as, as financial ability to be able to do that. So, so that sort of ladder was a matter of within the realm of what I could do. I just worked at doing it as best as I could and, and getting in faster cars. If you, if you take a corner at 40 miles an hour, you're, your mental processor, we're nothing more than human computers, and our mind can come, can, can process your entry to the corner, your ability to break, your ability to make it through the corner and carry a certain amount of speed into the corner and then out of the corner and down the straightaway. If you're in a car that's capable of going 20 or 30 miles an hour faster, you have to train your brain to work that much quicker and your hands to move that much quicker and your feet to move that much quicker and your eyes to be able to process that input that much quicker. So the faster the car is, the, the more experience you have at processing that information. Consequently, you're better prepared to, to then race in faster cars. So, right. You know, so your life... training my brain. Oh, oh <laughs> sorry. Yeah, ah, brain training. Uh, that that's another book that you should write. I think um, <laughs> we could do that with on, on <laughs> You know, your life has broken a lot of limiting stereotypes. But one of the most familiar, I think, to all of us females is the joke about the terrible female driver. And <laughs> as I read your book, <laughs> you actually planted your very first car, I guess, into a Florida gator hole, hood submerged and all. So. Uh, as we end up this segment, please tell about that anecdote. It's a great story. How did it happen? And more importantly, how did you come back from that? What a life lesson there. Well, that was my very first race. I was hoping some people obviously are never going to let me forget it, but, um, but it was my very first race. That's why I'm saying failure. You know, I, I was slapped in the face with failure right at the beginning, which could have, could have ended my, my whole life of that, that, that life anyway. 
And because uh, it was very humiliating, and it typically did, it absolutely supported the whole women driver myth about you know oh yeah you know that's the girl driver that was the woman driver whatever, and um, and it was my street car so we had to pull that car out of the water and uh, which sat there for the rest of the day so it was totally soaked, flat tow at home and and get it running again um, and I had a lot of time to think about it because our next race was like you know months away because we don't race every weekend and so. I, I seriously doubted then, was I really, maybe I wasn't meant to do this as much as I felt internally, you know, in my human sense. I was like, yeah, this is really me. And then I'm like, boom, slap in the face. You aren't any good at this, and you're the woman driver. And so, um, so anyway, I, I just had a lot of time to think about it, and quite frankly, my husband was a great influence on me and said, Lynn, it's just, it's how bad do you want it? How hard are you willing to try, and, and, and how badly do you want it? And I dug my heels in, and and kept going and got where I won. But, you know, it just, it just tested me right out of the box. And, um, and I just had time to think about it and time to dig my heels in and time to let my appetite to say, I really want to do this. So thank God I did. You know, this might be a, a moment that you don't even remember because it's, it's past and accomplished and gone. But I'm wondering if you remember anything about what was going through your mind when you got into the car for the, for the next race, the one following the one uh, that ended up yeah. um, in the pond. I don't so what- remember because so much time went by that I can tell you what I do remember is in the 2000, the year 2000, which to be honest, didn't, for me, didn't seem that long ago. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I had a horrific crash at Indy during qualifying um, on Saturday afternoon at about 5.30 in the afternoon and destroyed a car. And um, I thought my, my whole, I thought it was all over, but even though I, I survived, the car didn't, and I knew we didn't have a backup car. And my team owner, Dick Simon, came to me and said, Lynn, don't worry about it. It wasn't your fault. You go home, you get some sleep. We're going to put you in the field tomorrow. And there was only one day left of qualifying. And I said, but we don't, he said, shut up, don't worry about it, I'm going to have it done, you go home and get some sleep, which I did. And I, I was hurt, I mean, I didn't break anything, but I was sore and bruises, and I hit the wall at 50 Gs, and um, so it was, a, it was a hard hit. And at literally 24 hours later, um, I rolled out onto the racetrack and, and had to drive through that same corner again that I had just crashed in 24 hours earlier. And I can tell you exactly what I was thinking about then. And, I mean, it was an amazing amount of support that I got and confidence that I knew that those guys had put the car together, that it was fine, and that I was fine, and that it wasn't my fault, and so just get out there and drive the freaking race car lift. And so, I mean, I remember that vividly um, because those lessons over the years of failure, and I had another crash in 1986 that if we had time I could tell you about, which is when I learned that you just, you literally can erase in your brain something that happened bad and overcome it and literally stand in the same place or walk to the same place or drive through the same corner and be in the moment, be now, and, and, and let go of past or what happened before you um, and, and be in the moment and be successful. Well, that's an amazing, amazing story. Uh, Folks, we're going to be back in a moment to hear more about Lynn's uh, racing days. So we'll join you in a few on the long road up. It's 
your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Carol Oglesby has a documented commitment to performance enhancement and development of positive embodiment along the full age and ability spectrum. She has created sport community-based programs that empower, educate, motivate in a sports plus model. She has worked with elite athletes who have experienced injury, burnout, and challenged relationships with coaches and teammates. She is a life coach dedicated to aid in the rediscovery of clarity, purpose, and joy in clients. Call Carol today at 818-324-2957. That's 818-324-2957. We go through all kinds of challenges in life. How we deal with them is a different story. If we carry them on our shoulders, we can experience health problems, relationship issues, and other negative aspects these challenges can pose. Jeanette Abney's Precious Predicaments is here to help you pick up and sort out the pieces through education and encouragement. You don't have to live in fear and pain. Let's find solutions together. Precious Predicaments is heard live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Build your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. You are tuned in to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. To reach Carol Oglesby or her guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now back to this week's show. Welcome, everybody. In this segment, we're going to focus on what is um, likely Lynn's most recognized race driving at the Indy 500 for the most part. Um, so, Lynn, I learned from your book that there's not one but three huge challenges to success at the 500. So take it just a few minutes to tell us about that, the concepts of sponsorship, qualifying, and then race day. So one by one through those. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure I would even break it down to just three but uh, right <laughs> okay yeah. more if the, more the better yeah well but obviously it takes um the experience you know like i was talking about earlier where you know you, you could feel that you can process um your brain can process those speeds and, and what was really first of all i think it, it, you know interesting for me and also difficult for me from a challenge standpoint was that i didn't really have the right experience meaning um, most of the time you come up through the ranks racing what they call open wheel, which means that there's no fenders on the cars, and, and running on ovals because Indianapolis Motor Speedway is an oval. And so my experience was, didn't have any of those. <laughs> I couldn't do either. Um, and so, but I had experience in racing high speeds, I'd raced um, at Daytona a number of times. I had set records at Talladega. It was well over 200 miles an hour, 212 average. Um, so I was, and I'd also raced at the 24 Hours of Le Mans down the Molson Strait, which is, you sustain uh, well over 215, 20 miles an hour uh, for, for an extreme amount of time for, for well over a mile. So I had experience at high speed. But not necessarily, and well, not at all on an oval with the exception of running at Talladega. So what I had was the ability to be able to adapt 
from something else to relate to it. So anyway, so that experience was kind of lack of experience, I guess you'd say, directly related, sort of was a, a liability in my case, but perceived by others. But in my mind, I was like, I can do this. Um, then you have to find a team. But because without a team saying, we will hire you to drive, or we will put you in our car, you're really just, you're, you're a pipe dream. I mean, you're literally just trying to, you know, make something happen. Um, and I was fortunate to meet um, Dick and Diane Simon. I met a lot of team owners, by the way, and I talked to a lot of different team owners about the possibility of me getting into an IndyCar. Um, and quite frankly, not one of them was interested except for Dick and Diane Simon, and Dick has, has a history of taking more rookies to Indy and, and making things happen for, for more rookies than any other team owner. So fortunately, he, I, he listened. I mean, I, in other words, I had somebody that would listen. And he gave me the opportunity to test the car for the first time in 1988, and quite frankly, it went really well, and that's when he said to me, and I'll never forget this as long as I live, we can do this. He didn't say, you can do this. He said, we can do this. So that meant I had a team. So when I started figuring out how to try to do this and to be able to then, the third piece was the sponsorship. The money has to come from someplace, and the team either has to have the funding and the the sponsorship and the ability to fund it, or the driver has to be able to find that funding and bring it to a team, or it's a combination of both. And so, Lynn, Lynn let me uh, break in just for a second. When you say funding, we're not talking about a dollar ninety-eight here. Uh, what no, what's the scope of we're the talking do- about dollars? Six figures, a minimum of six figures, and and ultimately it, it costs to put the put together first first class program. It's about a million dollars, but for something when you're not really running brand new equipment and you're running only the Indy five hundred, you know, we're still looking at at least a half a million dollars. And this was back in 1992, and, and actually 19, 1988, because that's when I started the when I started the process was when I drove the Indy car for the first time, and it did go well. And I thought, okay, I have some experience. I have a team owner that's willing to put me in a car, so I got to I got to start working on this really hard. <laughs> so I started working on it. Um, I actually didn't do Le Mans until the next year, and so that gave me more high speed experience. And oh, also I had experience racing a turbo car, turbo powered, which which turbo turbo powered engines react differently than normally aspirated. And so I had spent a whole season um, racing a, a Ford um, probe that had a turbo engine in it. So you know, all of these pieces became part of the puzzle that I had to put together. Um, to not make it too long of a story, after going to 150 companies that said no. I finally found the 151st, 151st company that I went to for sponsorship over this four-year period with J.C. Penney, and they said yes. And about I had to remember to, how to I had to heard yes in a long time. <laughs> so it, <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> like Lynn stopped selling, you know, you're, you're just somebody just said yes. So uh, J.C. Penney stepped up, and and they didn't come in with all of the funding, but they came in with enough funding that Dick said. We can get you through rookie orientation with that money, and I know you're going to do well. And when we get that together, other other sponsors will come on board, which is exactly what happened. So, so the pieces of the puzzle were about a four year process, and um, and and we were able to make it happen. And I was rookie of the year, which I didn't even know they had such a thing that they each year they honor out of the rookie field of drivers, and every driver who races the Indy 500 for the first time is considered a rookie, no matter how much success they've had in other forms of racing. And um, there were nine rookies that year in that class, if you'd call it, and out of that 33 that started. 
And I figured that the last thing in the world I would be as honored as Rookie of the Year, but I, I got it because I was the highest finishing rookie. In fact, I may have been the only finishing rookie in the race. Um, I finished 11th, so. Well, Lynn, if I'm, I'm not mistaken, if I recall from the book, you were actually the, quote, oldest rookie that, that year. Is that right? Well, not just that year. I'm actually the oldest rookie in the history of the Indianapolis 500, oh, wow. which wow. is just celebrated the 100th running this year. And um, so it's been, out, it's been around a while, and there's only 764 drivers that ever raced in the Indy 500, and I still hold the record for being the oldest rookie. Wow. Well, now, what about qualifying day? Uh, You went through seven of them, of course, and maybe some more that I don't know about. But at Indy, you went through seven. What's different about the qualifying day as compared to the race itself, which we'll get to in a minute? Well, in the earlier years, in the 90s, um, and for many years up until, I don't remember when they changed the rules, but it used to be that qualifying actually went over the course of two weekends. So that's four days. And that, and that you're limited as to how many times you can attempt to qualify. Um, that was the way it was in my earlier years. Um, and so the good news is you get more than one shot. The other good news is you're on the racetrack by yourself, which is very different than most other types of racing. Um, the bad news is the weather can really take you out of the ballpark. Um, because if you're out of your, you know, or if you run out of your chances, you have mechanical failures or you crash. If you only get limited number, you, you know, basically three shots at it, you can, it's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Um, the way it's structured now is that there's, it's over two weekends and you have unlimited amount of time. As long as, long as you have a car and an engine and tires, you can still go out and qual- try to qualify. The really unique thing about it, though, is that it's an average over four laps, which is, I think, also unique to any other types of racing. Most of the time, it's whatever your fastest lap was, one lap out of whatever, how many laps you you, you turn. At Indy, you have to not only go fast, you have to go fast for four laps, and it's your average over those four laps. And so consistency is is is, is rewarded, and fortunately, that happens to be one of the you know, we all have a style about how we do whatever it is we do. And as much as we'd like to be perfect, we aren't. But there's usually certain things that we're better at than others. And in this case, for me, one of the sort of styles, I guess you'd say, or one of the things that I'm good at is that when I when I achieve a level of success, whatever, if I get the best race, the best lap I can get, I'm, I tend to be very consistent, very smooth and very consistent. And that's rewarded at a high-speed oval like Indy. So... So my qualifying times were were usually pretty doggone good. <laughs> yeah, your 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 best your highest one was like two twenty four or something like that. I'm, yeah, I'm right. Um, well, I don't yeah. even remember now. It was two twenty four for two twenty five. But my highest qualifying position was um, outside second row six in nineteen ninety four. Um, but but what I'm saying is, in fact, I think one year I got the I got an award. It was a little separate award for having the most consistent four laps. So you actually. Hmm are rewarded not only if is your speed good if you you know if you could turn one really good lap and then the other lap isn't so good you know your average goes down and so in most cases my my four speeds were very very close to each other so um and one year I got the award for having the closest four speeds than anybody yeah. else and yeah. stuff like that you know, um, those are little extra rewards <laughs> th- this is you know probably a really um a question of a real neophyte at the sport, but it seems like obviously it's good to be in the front couple of rows, but 
what happens uh, over the course of your seven qualifications? What was your lowest um, um, seeding? And is it worse to be in the very last row? I mean, what is it bad to be right <laughs> yeah. smack in the middle? Yeah. What, uh, maybe the back there's row is no. Not, yeah, it's just really funny. I do. I'm one year I was in the back row, um, and they actually have a back row party. Um, and I was at first, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, so after qualifying's <laughs> yeah. all done, there's a whole week before the race, and, and they have one of those nights, they have what they call the back row party. And I said, you got to be kidding me. We actually celebrate being in the back row. <laughs> well, I can tell you that two years, you know, I was in seven, you're right. There were two years I was there that I didn't make the field, meaning that my speed was not fast enough. And let me tell you, when you're not in the race, after spending the month of May there and working very hard to get there and putting it all together, and then you don't qualify, it's called getting bumped from the field. Um, and to be honest, it happens to the best of them. I mean, Roger Penske had two cars that he, he is the most successful team owner in the history of the Indianapolis 500 in 1995, neither one of his cars made the field. I mean, they, wow. they had to put their tail between their legs and go home. Yeah. And so I, I, that happened to me in, in um, 98 and 99. And so that appreciation for even if you're only on the last row <laughs> changed dramatically after getting up from the field. So, um, so I've, had, I've been in the back, I've been in the front, and I've been in the middle. And the only better place to be, I mean, it is better to be towards the front because the beginning of the race tends to be the most dangerous uh, because everybody's still kind of packed together. And, um, and that's what usually, I mean, there have been horrific crashes in the first or second lap of the race. And those are the only times that being in the front sometimes can, can, can bite you. But in most cases, even then, most of the bad stuff happens in the middle or the back. And so if you're in the back, you do have a chance to kind of observe a little more and be a, a little more cautious because you know you're back there anyway. Um, but, you know, you, you can't get too cautious because the speeds are going to go dramatically very fast and you can get lapped too early if you're... Because if everybody's turning the same speed but you're in the back of the field, then, you know, it, it's a pretty hard uh, thing to be able to work your way up. So Right. Um, well... In regard, let's just look at the race itself for a second. Um, sometimes, and uh, Catherine Switzer, who's a good friend of yours, I know, was on our show, and we were talking about women and endurance, and sometimes the idea is that women do better relative to uh, the, all the the comparisons with men in endurance events, and um, the Indy 500 seems like it's definitely an endurance event. Um, did How did you feel you, how did you handle it, what is it? Two hours, two and a half hours? How long? How long actually are you out there? Well, it, it's 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 called the Indy Five Hundred because it's five hundred miles, and it's a um, it's a two and a half mile track. So that means you got to go two hundred laps. You don't know what the speeds, or you don't know how long that's going to take because it depends on how many crashes. Uh, and, of course, you know what course. I mean. Yeah. So yeah. it's not really a timed race. Sometimes they are, but in this case, it isn't. It's, and so, in fact, in 1992, my rookie year, it was the coldest day in the history of the race. It was only in the 50s, and so there were a lot of crashes. And I, I believe that the race took like four hours, and, you know, I had no idea. I mean, it, to be honest, you could have told me it took two hours or ten hours. I wouldn't have known the difference. So, um, so it, isn't, it would be considered an endurance race because, because you are out there for... You know, I mean, it, it, I, I can't do the math to say that if you averaged 
220 miles an hour, which is, which is, which is the average of the speeds, how long that would take to turn 500 miles. I don't, I can't do the math. But in most cases, because of pit stops and because of, of there, there's going to be some yellows and some things that cause the average speed for the overall race to go down. It's usually been around between 180 and 190 miles an hour is the average speed of the overall race. And so you're going to be out there for at least two to maybe three hours, three hours between yeah. two and three hours. So, yeah. but you know, my success prior to even racing Indy has been in endurance racing. Um, where you are out there for two or three hours at a time, and on top of that, you get back in the car more than once because it, the, the, the cars run for the full 24 hours. But the reason that that, I think, is why I've done well there is because it's such a team effort. You know, you, you, the car is the only thing that goes the distance. The drivers and the crew also have to, by the way, the, the crew usually goes the distance, meaning nobody gets any sleep. They're up the whole time. The drivers are the are the guys that get to get in and out of the car and, and get some rest in between. But it's such a team effort. It's such an overall effort. And and I do well in a team environment. And I think that may be, I don't, I don't want to say that's gender specific because I think that's individual. I think some people are, you know, are, I mean, our sport's kind of strange because it's kind of a, I call it a hybrid. It's a team sport. It always is because it takes a whole crew of people to put a car together and maintain the car and, and prepare the car and run the car during the race. But yet, it's an individual sport because there's only one driver in the car, and that driver is is who's competing against every other driver. So, yet yeah, we, you know, we we require this team, and if you don't have chemistry and you don't gel well with your team, no matter how good your car is, and no matter how good of a driver is, if the crew isn't behind you and the car's not well prepared, you're not going to win a race. So, we are really this hybrid of being a team and individual sport. Um, and I think that's more critical than the whole gender thing as far as I, I never felt like I had any advantage over anybody because of the endurance. Um, so right, it's not like right, some right. other sports where women do maybe have some inherent advantage, you know, where they do well in endurance events. Lynn, we've only got a few seconds here, but I know that you have many, many great friends in racing, but I'm thinking there must have been a few chauvinists that really weren't too happy about you being out there. Give us one little quick phrase or, or, or feeling for the guys that did, really didn't want you to be there much. Well, you know, I, I mean, I think back probably um, the early years was a lot more um, chauvinist. You know, co- combination of probably two things. One is um, that I think back in the 70s and the 80s, you know, there was still a lot more um, open, chauvinistic attitude about women doing anything that was outside of what they considered the norm. And so I probably ran into a lot more of that back then. To be honest with you, I kind of sloughed a lot of that off because I just I learned a long time ago back in the 70s that a lot of that was nothing more than a distraction. And, and, and if I tried to respond to that, I had people yeah, try to, to um, right. do crap, you know. But I think, you know, I, most cases, by the time I got around to the 90s, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't think I really experienced it, or if I did, I didn't really allow it in, if you know what I mean. I kind right. of just blocked it all out. And I knew there were a lot of guys that were probably not happy about me being there, but I didn't really care. So I just sort of kept my head down and, and just kept doing Keep it. Keep going. And, uh, very good, very good. All right, we'll be back in a few moments and with for further look at the long road up. 
Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Carol Oglesby has a documented commitment to performance enhancement and development of positive embodiment along the full age and ability spectrum. She has created sport community-based programs that empower, educate, motivate in a sports plus model. She has worked with elite athletes who have experienced injury, burnout, and challenged relationships with coaches and teammates. She is a life coach dedicated to aid in the rediscovery of clarity, purpose, and joy in clients. Call Carol today at 818-324-2957. That's 818-324-2957. Are you ready for a health, life, and empowerment show in one? Then be sure to listen every week for Living Well with Ann Beal. Ann takes her long-running TV show to the Internet Talk Radio Airwaves with guest experts and insight designed to help you live a healthy and successful life. By hearing from the experts and those who have found success, our goal is that you too will be motivated to do the same. Living Well with Ann Beal can be heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. To reach Carol Oglesby or her guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now back to this week's show. Well, I think I'm paraphrasing this uh, reasonably close to the mark. Um, one of your striking mottos was you have to prepare to prepare to win. Uh, what does that mean to you, and, and how do you go about living by that motto? Well, I, I, to, uh, you have to have the will. To have the will to win is not enough. You have to have the will to prepare to win, um, and that's, that is the motto that I really have on a little plaque to remind me. that. And preparation, and I think racing is so difficult and challenging for many reasons, but one of them is that you don't get a chance to practice. And so, you know, when I, you know, I used to play a lot of tennis, and, and when I started racing, actually, I was still a tennis player. And so, you know, and if we had a t- competition coming up or a tournament, you know, you go out and you drill and you work on your forehand or you work on your serve, and, you, you know, you could really go out and, and in, in your mind you were preparing. And in racing... You know, you don't you don't go out and drive fast on the street. That doesn't count. That doesn't work. Um, and there's no chance to really go out. I mean, it's a, it's very it's not affordable to go out and run a racetrack, and it means that's what that's what you do at the top level. Um, but I wasn't quite there yet, so I had to. I really was frustrated on how do I prepare for next weekend's race. And and this went on and on and on. And even as I got to the professional level, if you race 20 times a year throughout the course of the year, what do you do in between? And so I learned about physical preparation, mental preparation, um, organizing my life, time management, um, communication, all of the things that I knew were important to be having success in racing, technical and mechanical knowledge um, so that I understood more about what was going on with the race car. So preparation for me was you spend that time in between races getting physically staying or getting getting and staying physically fit eating properly time management so that when you left to go to the racetrack you were not carrying mental baggage about all the stuff that you didn't get done um 
proper communication skills so you knew that your crew was properly prepared for the race and communicating with them. And, you know, all of those things were really as much, if not more so important than how fast you got to drive the race car or how fast you went in the race car. So it was all of the, paying as much attention to those details throughout the course of the days and the weeks leading into the race um, as it was just actually driving the race car, you know, which... You know, you feel when you're preparing in other sports, you're you're actually doing the sport. Um, in this case, we couldn't do the sport, so it was all I had to place as much importance on all those other things to know that I was fully prepared for the competition. Mm-hmm. Um, you have consistently received such high acclaim within the racing community for how you have given back to that sport. Um, t- tell us now about the different ways that you've gone about giving back. They're really, they're fantastic and very creative on your part. So tell us about those. Well, Carol, you know, through the Women's Sports Foundation, which is how we met, that, you know, that was the, the door opener for me to starting to understand that through our sport and our passion to pursue our sport, that we weren't just doing it for ourselves, that we could actually benefit others. And so it was through my work with the Women's Sports Foundation and my Shiro Billy Jean that I went, wait a minute, I, this isn't just about me. I, I can focus on me to be as successful as I can in my sport, but there's a way to give back. So for the, most of the decade of the 80s and, and into the early 90s, I did that through the Women's Sports Foundation by just volunteering my time and, and, and being involved with, you know, as a board member and president and all that good stuff. And then when I did India in 92, I got so much fan mail, uh, which I had was not accustomed to, and it was always asking for advice. And, and I'm like, I can't just, these people don't want just an autograph. You know, that's not, that's pretty shallow. So I, I realized that what I learned through working with the Women's Sports Foundation and Billie Jean was that I could possibly do this now for women in racing. So I did create my own foundation, um, and which I titled the Women in the Winter Circle Foundation. And I worked for many years on creating a driver development program and working with young drivers. We, we had over 250 drivers from, I think it's 33 states and five countries that came through our program. And some of them went on to be very successful, Danica Patrick and Sarah Fisher and, and some others um, that I, I really didn't, I mean, it's not like I made their careers, but I feel like we were able to contribute to their knowledge and to their understanding of what they needed to do to prepare for success. And and some of them I mentored on an ongoing basis, like Danica and a few others. So, um, and then... Recently, within the last couple of years, I realized that the Women's Sports Foundation is still very much is going to be around whether I'm around or not. And so I was able to then help create, with the help of Paul Newman giving me $10,000 and others getting on board, um, a scholarship fund uh, through the Women's Sports Foundation called Project Podium, where young drivers, or it doesn't matter their age, sorry, that drivers or women in racing can apply for a grant and scholarship through the Project Podium grant. And so... Um, so I've been able to, I think, impact our sport. I mean, uh, we've had more women race in the Indy 500 than any other form of motorsports, uh, with the exception of maybe drag racing. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't take credit for it, but I think I helped influence that. And, and hopefully uh, a lot of other females are now racing, you know, that uh, maybe wouldn't have done it had they not seen examples of it um, and also not maybe applied for a grant. Yes. I remember you talking, Lynn, um, some, some some years ago now uh, about your awareness. Um, maybe you weren't the only one, but you were dramatically seeing that uh, there weren't very many people of color that 
maybe not so many people of color that were driving, and you were looking for an impact in racing, kind of like uh, an Althea Gibson or uh, Tiger Woods or something with their impact on tennis and golf. And and so you took some steps, I think, uh, t- tell a little bit if I'm right about that, about trying to reach out to a more diverse community among drivers and, and the future of racing drivers. Well, I think it's probably not to be as specific to that other than um, if you see the interest and you see some of the grassroots level, and I mean, I think one of the impacts that I think Title Line has had is that now moms and dads are saying it's okay for our daughters to do what's okay for us, what's always been okay for our sons to do, because racing is a risk, you know, high-risk sport. Um, but, it, you know, and it isn't accessible to the school system or the parks or the, the normal places that kids usually get a chance to participate in a sport usually comes through school or, or extracurricular activities and 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 racing isn't that way. And so that means it usually comes from a family that's involved or at least um, there's been some exposure. And to be honest, when you are in different cultures and, and different ethnic cultures, it's difficult to even have exposure to it. And so I think... It's just more of my heart wanting to be make sure that anybody that has a passion or an interest that could be turned into a passion and then have the skills, we certainly look for that. Um, NASCAR has been, I'm on NASCAR's diversity council, um, so I've been trying to be as helpful as I can with them. Um, but, you know, it's it's a very financially, it's a sport that depends tremendously on financial resources, and so... You know, it's only going to be limited. It's going to be limited to only those that can figure out how to figure out that financial picture. And um, and so at that point, the car doesn't know the difference. The car doesn't know what ethnic, you know, background you have or what gender you are or what part of the world you've come from or how old or young you are. Um, but I can tell you that the ability to be able to find the financial resources to make that car go or to get that car and make it go, it does limit who gets a chance to experience it, and it's just some realities there. So I've done what I can, but, you know, you can't make something happen that, you know, I can't make it cheap. <laughs> I can't make it affordable. It's, right, it's, right, it is right. What it is. Um, there seems to be uh, quite an interest now also in uh, what they call STEM careers, um, science, technology, and so on. It, it seems like there should be or could be is a relationship between women getting involved in STEM careers and and racing. Um, Is that part, does the RPM Foundation play into that at all? Well, the RPM Foundation, which I am an ambassador involved in, that has to do with restoration and preservation. Um, So that's really restoring and preserving our history um, through the automotive or actually airplanes and boats and and vehicles, including race cars and including Mm -hmm. race equipment. So, but you're right about the STEM connection, um, which most of the auto, or at least I know Honda and Mazda are, are working in that direction. And, um, and there was an initiative that, that I'm not sure the status of that right now where they were focusing primarily on females and that was called Grace Autosport. But I mean, we, we really, I'm on the board of, of Kettering University, which is one of the top engineering schools in the country out of Flint, Michigan. And there is definitely a, a demand for engineers, and there is certainly an opportunity for women to pursue engineering fields, which of course comes through STEM education at the you know, at the lower levels. Um, so, 
and, and racing is, is exciting and is certainly one of those applications for engineering. And so we are certainly utilizing motorsports as a way to attract young people into STEM uh, curriculum. And, you know, that's definitely an activity that is being supported by Idel Honda and Mazda and, uh, and some other of the manufacturers. That's great. Um, Lynn, we've not talked much at all about your daughter. This program is really focused about <laughs> women and their sport. Uh, but but how, how would you say that your career has been for your daughter? Was she ever afraid for you or wishing that you would stop? Um, what's been your relationship with her about your um, involvement in racing? Well, I mean, she really wasn't very interested in it, to be honest. <laughs> and so, and I respected that. I mean, she was a great little athlete herself, naturally, but she never really was incredibly competitive. And so, and then during those years that, you know, that I was racing, particularly at the very highest level, at the indie level in the 90s, um, she was also in high school and junior high and high. And so she had her life and, and I had mine. And so she did come to Indy most of those years. But I have to tell you, one of the thrills I had was we were able to celebrate together the 100th running of the Indy 500. She came back with her boyfriend and I wasn't racing and competing. And so I had lots of time to be able to share with her. And, you know, it was a really, it was almost like coming full circle where she was older now and she's an adult that she understands and and appreciates what I've accomplished um, in in a much bigger way than she did when she was still kind of putting her own stamp in the world. And so, um, so, but she, I don't know if she ever feared for me. I think she did, but you know, her dad also raced, um, land speed record stuff. And, and so she'd been around that sort of environment where she knows how much emphasis was placed on safety and, you know, a couple of years at Indy, she was around when there were some horrific crashes and, and drivers were severely injured. Um, and so she knew that the possibility was there, but she never, if she was really scared for me uh, beyond what would be just normal concern, she never shared it with me. So, yeah. so far, I think we've made it through that era. Okay. Very good. Yes. Well, we've just got a few minutes, a couple of minutes here, and I'm wondering about the future um, any goals that you have yet to fulfill, things that you want to see before uh, what I call the last checkered flag, so to speak? <laughs> well, I mean, I still race vintage cars, which, you know, I found out that old race car drivers get to drive old race cars. So I'm oh, that's cool. And fun. <laughs> that's great. And where? Like, yeah, where do you friend, do that racing? Well, I just raced at the Indianapolis Brickyard um, Invitational in June, and I will be racing at Watkins Glen in New York in September. Um and I've raced out in California and various, I just raced at Sebring earlier this year at a vintage race. So there are these, the SVRA is a very active and there are other active vintage racing organizations. But if you go to SVRA.com, cool. um, yeah. if their schedule's up and I, I don't run in all of them because I don't own a race car, but I race other people's cars um, that I get invited to compete in, in their cars. And quite frankly, I love it. I have a blast. Um, and so that's really, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of come full circle where I'm racing for fun again. And, uh, that's, which is how I started. And, and the serious, real serious racing is behind me and that's okay. And my friends that know me say, there she is, eight years old, taking the checker flag. So as long as I can keep going <laughs> and, great. you know, and, and I'm, I'm not a liability out there. Um, then I feel that, I mean, I'm just enjoying it, Carol. I mean, now it's just the time. It's, 
to enjoy life. To I'm still working uh, with the Women's Sports Foundation with our Project Podium. I'm working with RPM. You know, I'm, I'm giving back with as much as I can in my life, and and yet taking experiencing new opportunities. I'm going to Concours. I'll be at the Concord of America in in um, Plymouth, Michigan next weekend. Um, yeah, I'm getting invited to things that I never had time to go do before, and uh, so now I'm doing. <laughs> Very good. That's a good checkered flag. All right, everyone, join us next week when we're going to be hearing from three differently abled athletes with their challenges on the long road up. See you then, or hear you then. Thank you for listening to Women and Sport, The Long Road Up. Please join Carol Oglesby for another edition next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have an amazing week.